0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft, And we are live on tape from Dublin. This is part two of the Crantabulous world of Derek (laughs) Taylor, because that is where we left him, in the middle of this 1967 psychedelic odyssey. And like many people, for better or for worse, he's kind of been uh, maybe indoctrinated in the word, but he's certainly been influenced into maybe opening another door of perception into what his life could be. Dosed. Is the word. Well, he has been dosed. So when we left our um, cravatted hero, he was at a party at the end of May 1967 and John and George are there. He's had a double dose of LSD. His seven month pregnant wife is also tripping. And he, having spent two and a bit years in LA as a, as a freelance PA for the Beach Boys and um, the
2: Birds, he, 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 there's a draw that is bringing him back into the Beatle universe. There is, but not before he goes back. Uh, We still have the Monterey Festival to get through. Yes. And he still has commitments back in the West Coast, on the West Coast.
0: Yeah, and so obviously everyone listening knows that the summer of 67 is the, the summer of love. And, you know, when we got to the end of the last episode, it's all fun and games while everybody's dosing and micro dosing. But what happens next is Derek is part and parcel of an incident that we have have spoken about before that perhaps changes the course of the Beatles' drug history.
2: Yes. So Paddy Harrison's sister, Jenny Boyd, is in San Francisco in 1967. And she is writing back home, uh, you know, pre-email. These things take a while to filter through and back. Yes. And she's saying, oh, San Francisco is, is marvellous and it's full of beautiful people. And So ultimately, George and Patty decide to go and check this out for themselves. But Jenny Boyd will make the point that by the time they actually get there, all the beautiful people aren't beautiful anymore. They're kind of drug casualties and it's every, uh, you know, disaffected teenager in America has descended on San Francisco. So they're stepping into a very different community in a very different society from how they imagine it to be, both in terms of their own perception, because they're operating at the level of the Beatles. They only mix with beautiful people. Mm -hmm. And also from the reports that Jenny Boyd has been delivering to them earlier in the year, and you've had the Monterey Festival and all the good vibes, et cetera, et cetera. But things have started to change in San Francisco. So George and Patty, slightly high, as Mm -hmm. always, arrive downtown. They're wandering around. The crowd develops and there's an element of paranoia and the crowd are wanting something from George. And George will credit this visit as changing him in terms of his relationship with LSD. These aren't beautiful people at all. And he can see the darker side of drug culture.
0: Yeah. And so this is the the, the famous story where George is walking through Hate Asprey and it's George and Patty. Uh, Neil Aspen is there. Magic Alex is there. And Derek Taylor is also part of the entourage. And yeah, uh, you know, I think George says, you know, it's full of spotty kids and dropouts, yeah. and it's th- there's this kind of ugly, dark atmosphere. Which darkness is a word that gets attached to LA culture as the '60s progresses, for one reason uh, or another. But George is a beetle in the middle of his people, and it just as a side point, it is interesting to consider that once the Beatles step off the live stage in August 1966, what is their interaction with the general public? It's very, very, very little, really. Like they, they've they gone from appearing in front of paying crowds and meeting people at press conferences and being somewhat available, or at least people being able to find out where they are and infiltrate the hotel and all the rest. But their 1967 work is very much, um, it's very apart from the general public. As, as popular as it is, it is, it's kind of a closed shop. So this is a very unusual kind of walkabout with the public.
2: Yes, they're working behind closed doors to mm. produce Sgt Pepper. And, and we have the speculation in the press that, uh, you know, are they going to break up? Are they on the way in? You know, their last single has got to number two, hasn't got to number one. Shocking. Paul talks about knowing that *Sergeant Pepper was coming and that it was going to be this fantastic album. But the perception at the time was perhaps they've gone off the boil slightly and they aren't available to the public only in newspaper stories.
0: But something like the Monterey Festival is, as we said in the first part, it's kind of happening in the world that the Beatles are still the kings of. They have kind of made all of this happen and they are seen as still this kind of ultimate accolade. And certainly when Sergeant Pepper drops, that almost codifies it. You know, this kind of will they, won't they, are they or aren't they any good this album, if we are to believe the hype from the time you and me were much too young to remember any of yeah. this, was being played from every open window on the high streets of London. But it, it it is a massive seller. It is the thing that takes over. Once again, the Beatles are riding the, the cultural zeitgeist with this record and with All You Need Is Love later that month.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, although the focus has shifted to the West Coast, You know, I'm not sure if David Crosby refers to them as the kings across the water. You know, they are still the leaders of of what is happening. They're still in in the vanguard of this cultural movement, even though they aren't present Mm. at the epicentre of what's happening. And again, Derek Taylor is there and he is still a link man for them.
0: Yeah. And so in anthology, Derek talks about this Harrison walkabout in, in, in San Francisco. Somebody hands George an acoustic guitar. He performs a bit of Baby, You're a Rich Man hot one. And um, Derek Taylor is on one side of him, Magic Alex is on the other. And, and Derek in Anthology says, you know, photographs tell the story of this great visit by one of the fab Pied Pipers. It is one of the best known moments in the great novel. The crowds that gathered, well-meaning though they were, pressed upon the English visitors and made life difficult and a little dangerous. George didn't enjoy Hate Asprey, yet it was right and inevitable that one of them should have been there in those times. And, you know, I guess what Derek is getting at there is that hate Asbury kind of exists because the Beatles mm. have existed for a couple of years and the one time they kind of step foot in the place they really want nothing to do with it
2: no this really is a, a key moment in George's character and his relationship with the fans with the with drugs in particular yeah and uh, it sort of is taken as cementing this idea in his head that you know drugs are not the answer yeah
0: and for the moment, Derek hasn't been pulled back to the UK. He is still based in L.A. And again, he gets involved in another artist. And the Derek Taylor influence on this artist is still present to this day. It is an artist that we did an episode about ourselves, the one
2: and only Mr. Harry Nielsen. Yes. So Derek is not officially, I think, representing Nielsen, but he is so blown away by this album and Mm. by the talent that supposedly he buys 25 copies of Pandemonium Shadow Show and he sends them to people that he thinks will be influenced by them and thinks should hear that. And of course he sends copies to the four Beatles who are all very taken with this.
0: Yeah, and it's it's the song 1941 that he apparently hears on a, on a car radio that uh, flips the switch to yeah. make him, uh, you know, start going the extra mile for Harry Nielsen. But again, it is that little moment of Derek Taylor that we still think of Harry Nielsen in the context of being in with the Beatles when the Beatles get those albums from Derek, they get, turned on to Harry and Harry's their favourite American band is is the line that they're using in press conferences a few months later.
2: Yes, and as I say, it's not an official PR exercise yeah. for Derek, although it, he will go on 1973, he produces A Little Touch of Schmilson in the Night. Fantastic record.
0: But all of this is pointing towards what we said in the first part is that Derek's life is in three acts. There's the initial 1964 Beatles period, there's his L.A. period, but then there's 1968 and Act Three, which is You know, Apple Corps is open for business. I'm going to put a big sort of asterisk beside the word business and say chaos in the footnotes. And it is very much of the nature of how um, Derek is thought of and how much he is loved by the Fab Four that it seems to be. Let's uh, let's send a telegram to Derek, and the person who instigates this is George.
2: Yeah. So again, this close relationship and Alistair Taylor, uh, this is a quote from the Beatles off the record by Keith Badman, but Alistair Taylor talks about this and he says, one Sunday morning I met the four Beatles and we were talking about Apple and what was going to happen and what we were going to do. And one of them said, I, I'll tell you who would be great at this, Derek Taylor, our old mate Derek. Derek was a hell of a character and at this time was in Los Angeles. The Beatles said, Derek will be great for Apple. And I said, yes, great. Doing what? And they said, well, we'll think of something. So I rang Derek and said to him, hello, I've got some people here they want to talk to. There and then during that phone conversation, Derek agreed to pack up in L.A. and come over to England to work for Apple. So there's that sense Derek will be great for Apple. He will chime with what it is. Well, what do you want him to do? I don't know, but he's perfect for Apple. <laughs> but it, it also feeds into this knowledge that Derek is a bit of a magician for yeah.
0: words and attention and he's got an excellent radar and he is loyal. So as we said at the end of the last episode, you know Brian Wilson is saying, hey, are you the Beatles guy? I guess you're not. And he's going, yeah, I am. Yeah, and this, I really am. this is kind of where his heart lies. And he's already spent a number of years having gone from the staid 30-year-old theatre writer in the Daily Express to following his nose and riding this wave of pop culture. So certainly from the point of view of 1968, Apple seems to be the next big thing. We've talked a lot about Apple and how it had great intentions and the idea is still great. But April, May 1968, post-Rishikesh, the Beatles are setting it up. And there's no reason when the Beatles are You know, exposing the virtues of Apple—that it's not going to be a a big number one smash hit. They've gotten everything else right. So Derek says, "Yeah, but he's got no money.
2: He's got no money. No money. This is strange. I mean, he's living the life in L.A. Presumably, so he's not putting money away in a savings account. Good boy for a rainy day. There are no (laughs) rainy days, and never rains in Southern California. That's the problem.
0: That's why nobody's got any savings. So he he organizes a concert, a charity concert for
2: himself. Yeah, so he can get all
0: his family and his stuff and his flights back to the UK
2: magic. That's a you know fantastic way to travel. We should do that. So yeah, so he gets back and he is basically there in August 1968 for the release of Hey Jude. He's overseeing the press campaign for that. He is, uh, you know, compiling the first four singles, delivering them in a little box to Her Majesty the Queen. I'm sure she loved that.
0: Well, this is the thing about Derek, though, because he gets involved in all these little promotions and twists and they are things that we still think about uh, when we think about the Beatles. So certainly Apple gets launched with good intentions. Derek is there and Derek is a man of taste. So the decisions that are being made in Apple, he would have quite liked the notion of the the, the lengths that they went to to get the greenness of the apple yeah. correct on the label and the, the nature of the, the black sleeve that the, the singles would come in and presenting them in a box to Her Majesty the Queen. And so generating that kind of um, press and those kind of stories, these are the legends that we are obviously still talking about today.
2: Yes, he's absolutely committed to this. And Peter Brown does say, Derek believed in the Beatles' good intentions and his enthusiasm was infectious. He was also blessed with the gift of charm, wit and imagination. And they trusted him absolutely. They did. He was given free reign and he pretty much made great decisions
0: all the time. But there is a but that comes with Peter Brand's assessment. Always a but. There's always a but.
2: And he said, but Derek at the time was also a man with a great capacity for alcohol and drugs, a kind of inebriated psychedelic visionary. He was the dispenser of Apple's good vibes. He sat behind a large desk in a fan wicker chair, cigarette or joint in hand, scotch and coke before him, greeting a never-ending stream of visitors. Now, I think that's a little unfair. I think that's... Probably, Apple turns into that. Yes, but certainly in the initial days, I think Derek is, is is fundamental.
0: I I'd agree that he is fundamental. I think certainly as fans, when we think of Derek Taylor, Derek in the big, you know, peacock fanned wicker chair is is an image that we have from the interviews at the time that Derek gave in relation yeah. to the Beatles and. What Apple would become, which was this kind of open door policy, come one come all, it certainly would have struck somebody who likes a good time like Derek Taylor, yeah, it's my dream job <laughs> it's a bit late, I'm afraid um there's a very strange and unusual quote that that, that kind of is left hanging uh, from Derek uh which he says. Uh, from the summer of 1968. I I don't think I ever hated anyone as much as I hated Paul in the summer of 1968. So Derek is clashing with Paul right at the start of Apple business. Yes. Do we know why?
2: That's very specific, I think, to 1968 and uh, the role of postcards in The Life of the Beatles.
0: Yes. And you're talking about, uh, of course, the debut album from Mary Hopkins. Exactly. 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 But I suppose it's fair to say that the Paul and Derek... Dynamic is very different to Derek and the rest of the Beatles.
2: I think the problem in 1968 was that Derek was the purveyor of good vibes, and good vibes don't come cheap. So his Mm. press office was profligate. They were spending money like water. (laughs) And And Paul is the boss. Well, he is the boss. And You know,
0: we touch repeatedly on this notion how Derek had favored nation status within the Beatles camp. Yes. that You know, he is, you know, liked and supported and he's brought back in. But Paul, as has been his want in other kind of dealings with people, um, you know, like the not meeting Brian Epstein thing through to, you know, you know, we're a bloody big band. He'll take 10%. There's a version of this against Derek where he's he's not shy against saying I'm Paul, and you're not exactly a Beatle.
2: Yes, there is a sense of that. And the fascinating thing is, as you say, he has that sense of himself right from the early days in the dealings with Brian Epstein. But certainly, you know, Derek talks about how it took a while to gain the trust and confidence of the Beatles, but he's quite complimentary in anthology about Paul. And he said, Paul stood back a bit. He was very nice, though. We seem to have a lot in common. Merseyside Grammar School boys, different ages but we sort of fit. Mm. So he arguably has a lot more in common than, you know, John Lennon, the teddy boy, or the Ringo and George that don't have the formal grammar school education that he and Paul have. But there always seems to be this slight distance between the two of them.
0: Well, Derek's best pal is George, really, in the group. And you see that right through to the 90s. Um, And you know he never has to explain his friendship with George no but he's sort of explaining his friendship with Paul and as you say by 1968 Apple is starting to um realize you know novel ways of getting rid of cash yes and <laughs> there's this story that you know Paul organizes a staff meeting and says rather you know this this is great leadership speak i'm sure he learned this at a conference he says to the amassed staff of Apple don't forget you're not very good any of you you know that don't you
2: that, that would that would motivate you to work harder. Very
0: inspiring talk. Um, there is a little bit of foreshadowing because in 65, doesn't Derek annoy Paul while they're in the Bahamas? In the
2: Bahamas, yes. The last thing you want if you're a Beagle and in the Bahamas in 1965 is your former ex-press officer turning up with a tape recorder to get an interview and in quotes for teenage magazines in America. But that's what happens. Derek is working for a chap called Bob Eubanks mm-hmm. and he prevails upon Derek to prevail upon his friendship with the Beatles and he turns up. And this does not go down well. And John Savage uh, wrote an article in, in GQ around the time that Derek's book was being republished, reissued. And he says it was an excruciating encounter. Paul McCartney was particularly brutal. Bloody hell, he said, when he saw Derek you were the tape recorder asking us questions and Derek said, oh yes, me with the tape recorder. The thing was, what did I represent? Their friend or a journalist or their ex-publicist, Brian Epstein's ex-personal assistant or a puppet of Bob Eubanks or a man in search for a career in American radio or what? He gets back in, hmm. gets the interview, he goes back to Bob and he says, Yeah, I got the quotes, but I sold my soul. And then in his book he comments, he says, $250. Is that the going rate for a soul?
0: Poor Derek. Poor Derek. And poor Paul, yeah?
2: Yeah, poor Paul. <laughs> but this whole interaction with Derek gets a bit strange. It it does. And I think it is indicative of Paul was always more sensible. <laughs> you know, than Derek. That damn, that damn Paul yeah. sensibility. You know, I think it is that, that idea that, you know, we, you talked about this before, about Paul saying, well, now hang on a minute. yeah, you, you know, what are we paying you for? What are you doing? What are we getting out of this? Is this too much? How long is this contract? What is your percentage? So you get a sense that Derek, having set Apple up, is more the dispenser of good vibes. And I think what's behind that is Paul doesn't necessarily see that good vibes are essential, or perhaps they're coming at too high a cost. And the weird way in which this seems to manifest itself between Paul and Derek is in postcards. Mm. And in several books, so the Hard Signs book, uh, he writes, Derek believed Paul was the sender of anonymous postcards he received at home, some weird, some outright nasty ones, as Derek recalls, with stamps torn in half and cryptic <laughs> messages and. Derek refers to this in his book, As Time Goes By. Postcards would arrive at my house from America or Scotland or wherever. Some outright nasty ones, some with no meaning that I could see. One with a postage stamp torn in half and pasted neatly, showing the gap between the two halves. Joan received one bearing the words, tell your boy to obey the schoolmaster and signed patron. (laughs)
0: Yes, that is weird. And this is also the year where Paul is sending postcards to other people, including the one, which we won't repeat here, which kind of offended John about Yoko.
2: Yes. And that that story about the card that arrives or the unposted that supposedly Paul slips in with with a comment about Yoko, it's in the Francie Schwartz book and it's picked up by Pete Doggart, but there's no other source and there's no other corroboration. But this is what would be termed circumstantial evidence. I
0: see. Thank you for the legal opinion. Well, it does seem to coincide
2: with the Francie
0: Schwartz era. It's hard to say Francie it Schwartz.
2: It is hard to say that.
0: These kind of abrupt interactions.
2: Yes. And, you know, it goes beyond this. It goes into 1969. So in Get Back, we see where George leaves. And what the film doesn't show, what Peter Jackson documentary doesn't show, is that Derek sort of gets involved in that. He intercedes. He goes and speaks to George. And again, he writes about this and he says, Brian Epstein, I knew would have fought and fought to keep them together. And so I was bolder than I had ever been or ever would be again and demanded passionately and at length that George not let Paul carry the weight of keeping the film and the Beatles going. I felt that George's sense of decency could be touched and it was. So Derek is instrumental in this. And one commentator has said, Taylor's reward, a <laughs> postcard in McCartney's handwriting with the stamp carefully torn in half and the simple Northern injunction, up here.
0: Gosh, once again, wouldn't it have been great if uh, Paul and Derek Taylor were fighting this out on Twitter in yeah, 1968, 69?
2: It would be, it would be great. But, but postcards, as you say, postcards, much on Paul's mind in late 1968 and early 1969. And this only occurred to me Literally two days ago.
0: <laughs> um, well, yeah, we have the, the Mary Hopkin album Postcard, uh, which is released in February 1969. And we also have a song from
2: January 69, of course, two of yeah. us. Two of us sending postcards, writing letters on my wall, you and me burning matches, lifting latches on our way back home. Yes. One
0: of me sending postcards to the press officer yeah. on my way home. Yeah, That kind of thing. Uh, now, it's worth to say, Paul never admits to sending these postcards that are in his handwriting uh, to do with dealings about him. <laughs> he
2: doesn't admit to that. So I think we can add that to the list of questions (laughs) when Paul Paul. comes on to the podcast. Question number one, did you or did you not (laughs) send this postcard to Derek Taylor in 1968?
0: But Derek is, um, you know, to use that phrase uh, from Hamilton, is in the room where it happens. And he is in the room when a lot of things are happening in, in 1968, namely white album business.
2: Yes. So he's writing songs.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I was quite amazed to find out how much of Happiness is a Warm Gun is actually a Lennon McCartney Taylor composition.
2: This is really if you look at this, uh you think Derek Taylor really should have a right and credit on this. You know, we make jokes about you know, sky of blue and sea of green, mm. uh, sea of green, sky of blue. And history doesn't recall who wrote that. No, we no. don't know who wrote that. But whoever wrote that, probably not deserving of a writing credit no. for one phrase or one. But but happiness is a warm gun. So this is a song that that sort of starts off in in Rishikesh. It makes the Isher demos, and uh, but a lot of the lyric comes after India.
0: Mm. And so the, these are apparently phrases that Lennon and Derek. Um, you know, they have an asset trip with Neil and Pete Shotton and yeah. uh they they're kind of pulling all these lines together that we will all recognise from happiness as a is a warm gun. Yes. So is this from Derek's book that he kind of goes through all of this?
2: This is this is from uh Derek's book where he talks about this. So he said uh, I mean it's a very long quote, we not sort of uh, go on. <laughs> got all. But uh John said he had written half a song and wanted us to toss out phrases while Neil wrote them down. I just the way they work. You just have somebody to, uh, to, to write down what you're saying. First of all, he wanted to know how to describe a girl who was really smart. And I remember a phrase of my father's, which was, she's not a girl who misses much. It sounds like faint praise, but on Merseyside in those days, it was actually the best you could get. Then I told a story about a chap my wife, Joan, and I met in the Carrick Bay Hotel on the Isle of Man. It's very specific. Yeah. Uh, it was late one night drinking in the bar and this local fellow who liked meeting holidaymakers and rapping to them suddenly said to us, I like wearing moleskin gloves, you know, it gives me a little bit of an unusual <laughs> sensation when I'm out with my girlfriend. I'd have moved away quickly. I, think, <laughs> yeah,
0: I wouldn't want to hear the rest of the He then story. said,
2: I don't want to go into details. So we didn't. But that provided the line. She's well acquainted with the touch of a velvet hand. Then there was Like a Lizard on a windowpane. That, to me, was a symbol of very quick movement. Often when we were living in L.A., you'd look up and see tiny little lizards nipping up the window. This is the
0: whole song. It is the whole song. He talks about multicoloured mirrors on the hobnail boots being related to a newspaper story about someone who put mirrors on the toe caps of their shoes so they could look up skirts. Not great. Um, uh, lying while his hands are busy working overtime come from a thing that Derek had read about um, somebody who would use fake hands under a cloak that he could rest on a counter shop while he could shoplift underneath. I kind of like that, you know, just stealing that, a few Turkish delights from the news agents. That all seems very
2: complicated.
0: With some, fake, uh, <laughs> with some fake hands kind of sitting there. And then soap impression of his wife came from a conversation about the horrors of working, uh, walking in public spaces in Merseyside where you're always coming across evidence of people having, oh dear, this is all <laughs>
2: grim, um, defecated,
0: so, uh, they're, they're, so to that's do, where it,
2: that comes from. So he says, to, to donate what you've eaten to the National Trust, a British organisation with responsibilities for upkeeping countryside of great beauty was that what would now be known as defecation on common land owned by the National Trust.
0: Yeah, I uh, like to eat something and donate it to the National Trust now has ruined the, that, song. the song for me forever. And hopefully it's ruined it for all of you at home, in your cars, whatever you're listening to this. Um, but... John puts it all together. He creates this series of images. It doesn't happen without, yeah.
2: it all being summoned together yeah, yeah, by but Lennon you, himself. You, you think you think the the lyrics there? He's he's written half the lyric.
0: Oh, he has. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really striking. I I, I mean, this was
2: this was news to me. I have to admit. Whereas uh, his his contribution to Savoy Truffle is much, you yeah. know, it's there, but it it it's uh, much more in the in the nature of just throwing out a phrase. Well, this comes yeah, So apparently, um. George is is getting Savoy Truffle
0: together and he goes, oh, we need a bit here, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I thought again of my good friend, Alan Pariser. Is that Pariser? Alan, Alan Pariser. Alan Pariser, we'll say. He had done a film called You Are What You Eat, which was a very hippie thing. Don't eat meat, man, or you'll be filled with the adrenaline of frightened animals. So I said to George, you know that what you eat, you are. And that was that bit for Savoy Truffle. Yeah. All in a day's work. All in a day's work. Um, so, you know, how could somebody like that not have enough money for an airplane flight <laughs> from LA when he's writing all these smash hit singles? Drugs. Ah, yes, drugs.
2: Drugs, the great leveler.
0: <laughs> um, so, he's in this role of between 68 and, and, and 1970 and he's leading all these campaigns, but he's also a bit of a fixer. He's also a nice guy to have in the room, but he's he's not really doing things for Paul, he gets pulled into the John and Yoko verse.
2: He does. He becomes uh, very instrumental in the, you know, the peace campaign. Uh, He is there. Uh, He's named in the lyrics of Give Peace a Chance. And he was present at the recording of the song. So he talks about this in anthology. He said there was also the bed-in in Montreal at the end of May. I went out on that as well. John and Yoko, the film crew, Kyoko... Me, 26 pieces of luggage and various white suits. Joan and I went out on the QE2. Again, this is the job I want. <laughs> it was arranged that we would travel with John and Yoko and Neil and Susie. But as the song says, standing in the dock in Southampton, John and Yoko weren't allowed on the QE2 because of visa trouble over the dope bust. They flew to Montreal instead. But Ringo and Peter Sellers and wives and others were elsewhere on this enormous liner on its only at second voyage. It was that kind of weirdness going on again. And yeah, and he telexes a big report
0: back to the Beatles Monthly Magazine. Again, top job to have. You kind of imagine if 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 uh, all of this had happened in the days of social media, would have been yeah. quite quite a, quite something else. And, um, you know, Derek is kind of facilitating the bed-in that goes on for eight days. All the hundreds of people that come up, uh, whoever want to ask uh, John a question, that's fine. Um, you know, he sort of says anyone, they were completely available to anybody, provided they weren't obviously carrying a blood-stained axe, which is a very... Good metric of how to measure we don't let
2: people like that in the studio
0: no we've learned our lesson and uh, you know his says his job is there to be there day and night and run around and and be you know part press man part gopher part
2: good vibes person I guess yeah he says you know a lot of us have dreams about running our whole life from bed and for 10 days that's what John at Yoko did but, um, yeah, when the bed in is over, uh, Derek
0: says, we were told to clear off. In fact, um, John and Yoko were put in the first plane out to Frankfurt, which is not where we were going. We were going to London. So, that again is something people forget, being deported when the bed in was over. But, you know, he's had a, he's had a nice rest and a break. nice trip and is immortalized in the songs, of uh, the lyrics of uh, Good Pieces, John. Yeah, so that, that's where you want to go. Um, and, you know, he managed to get a nice break out of it. So, we're going to take a break. We'll be back after this. End of part one. Intermission.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. The continuing adventures of Derek Taylor. He, uh, he is uh, in the room where it happens again. Um, when 1969 kicks in and you know we should do an episode about Alan Klein sometime because he of, apparently he came to Apple and he cleaned house and made loads of great decisions and everything was fine from there on in not a lot of people know that not a lot of people know that but one of the big ticket items we have obviously discussed before is Northern Songs and Dick James wanting to sell off Northern Songs and Derek Taylor is
2: there when all of this is Going down. He is in the room mm. when Dick James comes to say, I'm selling up boys. <laughs> so this, this takes place in March 1969, while John and Paul are on honeymoon separately, obviously, separately. That's true.
0: And it's, you know, the story is that he wants to sell to Lou Grade's associate television company. And he's essentially Dick James rocks up to talk to Neil Aspinall. But as is the wonderful ways of Apple, uh, Derek
2: Taylor and George Harrison are in the room as well. Yeah. So Neil said, we were welcome to stay as long as we didn't interrupt or become facetious. You think he knows, Derek? (laughs) You think he knows what's about to happen. Such promises are easily given and impossible to keep. So we gave them and didn't keep them. Dick James told Neil that he had sold the shares to make his company safer, to protect the future against predators. God, so many warnings against predators. Who the hell are they? we ourselves are warned about predators who are warned about us and we warn about others who warn each other about others so that in the end there is no one we can trust, is the way he writes. George (laughs) asked Dick if there was no chance of John and Paul making the grade without the help of Lou grade, for Christ's sake. Dick said the question was not realistic. The future of Northern Songs had nothing to do with the fantastic talents of John and Paul in the admiration of whom he said he was second to none and there is no doubt he meant it and still does because he is a decent guy and all that. I told Dick I thought he was playing with words and Dick appeared not to like this suggestion and he said he had not come to see me nor had he come to see George, much as he admired George. But he had come to see Neil, he said, to explain why Lou Grade appeared to be on the way to owning the words, the music, the art of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. In the admiration of whom Lou had Mm. been second to most people, although when gold dust began to sprinkle their mop tops, he had typically been not unquick to spot it and now he was reaching out his hand to touch the gold himself. George told Dick that the trouble was Dick didn't really believe in John and Paul. Dick said that was a cruel, wicked thing to say. And I said, the truth sometimes sounded cruel and wicked, which is a very righteous and pompous thing to say, but said it was. And Dick said, when your opinion is needed, I will ask for it. I have come here to talk to Neil about private business concerning something very serious to me. Fucking serious to John and Paul, said George. Dick never liked rows with Beatles and I cannot blame him. He turned to Neil and said... The boys have come under the influence of some very bad advisors recently, and I'm not talking about you, Neil. I guess we all wondered what his dark hint meant. Was it Klein, or was it those predators again? Or was it really us, the Apple clique with our crazy attitude towards business, the let it be, it'll be okay amateurs? George and I left, and I regretted being rude, as I always do, and resolved to apologise to Dick James.' In the London Daily Mirror the next morning, the city editor, Robert Head, wrote, Dick James was wrong to sell, and I felt a little better, but not much. I like Dick James. He'd been there from the early days, and surely he couldn't be the enemy. But then, these days, everyone feels like the enemy. That's heavy
0: stuff, Stephen.
2: Heavy stuff. Very heavy stuff. But wonderfully written.
0: Wonderfully written, and, you know, assuming it's all 100% true, and I have no reason to believe it isn't true, you have to take your hat off to George Harrison for standing up for John and Paul because George really doesn't have to bother. He can go laughing all the way to the bank with his newly set up Harris songs yeah. and uh, the the songs that he's going to be putting into his own publishing. But Dick James, I, I feel as the years go by, is being labelled more of a, a villain as we see kind of footage of him in Get Back. In you know, in terms of as soon as the going got tough, he just sold up and left and uh, you know, again didn't really you can argue make a decision with taste yeah. uh, where he involves the Beatles in any useful way Dick Jaws a man of no flexibility <laughs> that's exactly what I we're allowed to say that now yes he's passed yeah. away um, that's fine but yeah uh, uh, but it does again feed into this story that Derek Taylor has a loyalty and he wants to do what's decent and right and even if he does have second thoughts about you know regretting being rude to Dick James um, I think it was the right thing to do saying calling that out to Dick James's face was on sure. the right
2: side of history Absolutely and I mean Derek is there as you say in the room front and center he and George witness to this unravelling or the start of the unravelling of the Northern Songs uh, issue.
0: But he does, you know, Derek is around when Get Back Let It Be is happening. He thinks that, you know, there's good vibes in the sessions, that it's interesting that, you know, they're, they're getting back together. He's When he sees the concert on the roof, he feels that, um, you know, it's great to see them back playing together live again. And, you know, this think is going well. I think he has a, a sense that this could have been the start of something new.
2: Yeah, I mean, he does allude to the fact uh, in anthology that Twickenham was not great. But he does say, you know, there was a two or three week period at the end of January when it was nice. He does also allude to the paranoia that's going on in Apple at this time. So Derek has facilitated the introduction of Klein. Uh, you, You know, he allows this to happen for a while. Klein has been kept at bay. Yep. But Derek is the one that sort of says, yeah, fine, you know meet meet with him. And we talked about that in the Klein episode. But he is there. Uh, he's saying when they did the concert on the rooftop, it opened up possibilities. That was the situation. Nobody had ever thought they would perform live, except we kept saying things like they may do another concert. There was talk all through the back end of 1968 about doing ad hoc concerts. So after they'd done the concert on the roof, everything was up in the air again. They may perform again, we said, because it did go well. So he's sort of foreshadowing the narrative that will come out of Peter Jackson's get back.
0: Mm. And, you know, famously, as we've said, Klein becomes the business manager of Apple in early 69. He cleans house, but Derek is not one of the people who are moved uh, away from Apple. He does get to stay in position, which is interesting for a chap who, you know, some people feel, oh, he's just sitting there in his peacock chair and having his drinks and, you know, uh, smoking his cigarettes and having a uh, you know, revolving door of people come in to visit him, but he obviously is an asset of some type. If he if he manages to escape the uh, the the Alan
2: Klein axe, I think so. You know, when the likes of Alistair Taylor are falling, yeah. Um, so I, I my supposition is that George basically put his foot down there because you know Klein was getting rid of people that stood between him and the band, and Derek Taylor very clearly fits that. Um, but survives. So you think only the personal intervention of a beetle saves you when when Klein is wielding his axe.
0: Yeah, and Paul doesn't intervene for Alistair Taylor, but perhaps George intervenes for um, Derek Taylor. So Derek is there for all of Klein's cutbacks he's there for the rollout of the Let It Be album he quite likes Phil Spector when Phil Spector comes over the horizon um you know he he says you know I met Phil Spector at the time of Let It Be I thought he was crackers and I liked him he was my kind of madman um I don't know perhaps if I, history has <laughs> proven him wrong there perhaps so you know and uh, but he he he's he's happy with that but as we know Apple is collapsing
2: Apple is collapsing and Derek Dawes described this period as just miserable mm. because, you know, this is a man with an unlimited expense account. Yep. Dream job. And uh, Klein is shutting everything down and reining everybody in.
0: Yeah, and so the Sunday Times in kind of one of their, it's kind of one of the key reports at the time uh, inside the crazy world of Apple uh, says, you know, everyone rich, poor, insignificant or famous, hippie or horror, politician or plumber wants uh, to involve his face with the Beatles says Derek Taylor wearily Taylor an unashamed Beatle maniac at heart carries on a love-hate relationship with his job and really earns his £6,200 per year and uh, you know it's 8pm it's 8, 8 now they describe that the apple scruffs are still sitting outside take a memo says Taylor he gets it in half an hour later when he could himself have typed 10 so it's still a very inefficient kind of workspace
2: yeah so th- this, this is an article that's written by Philip Norman. Oh yeah, first and last good thing Philip Norman <laughs> ever did. Um, uh, so he he describes this as uh, he, he said, uh, speaking into the phone, saying, "I can get you an interview with the Pope, two dozen cup final tickets, but a picture of all four Beatles together—just impossible, man." Derek Taylor inspects the memo, electrically typed on. Hand out paper-headed words from Apple. Apple, he says in a grimly rebuking tone to Sally, the receptionist, never uses exclamation marks. We are an exclamation mark. It's the end of a hard day's day. Another day in the life at Apple, a perplexing compound of hustlers and dreamers where all you need is love. Or is it? Yes. So this this is the article that really, I suppose, lifts the lid on the mayhem that is apple and there's a fantastic cover yes. for this the sunday uh, times magazine if you can get a copy of it i believe you got a copy of I it i did get a copy of it
0: i'm delighted for you and it's uh, january 1970 this yeah. is this is when this article is published and it's uh, yeah it's got a full color sunday times magazine cover story on um, you know the crazy world Of Apple. Um, Derek, as we kind of said right up the top, is one of the three non-Beatles interviewed afresh for Anthology. So Neil Aspinall, George Martin, Derek Taylor. And it does kind of speak to the fact that we get to the 1990s and he is still within the uh, favoured nation status that he is allowed to speak on behalf of the events that happened at the time. And um, he does talk about, you know, the decline of Apple in
2: Anthology. He's very open about that mm. and it's interesting that I suppose it is a non beetle that is the one that describes it yes you know the beetles don't Delve into that in the same detail um, as as Derek does, and by this by this stage, by the time anthology, you know, he's back on staff, and and uh, he's acting as sort of PR for that. But he he does it. So, for example, he said Alan changed a lot at Apple. He was a very big presence when he was in town. He had an office right opposite mine, and it shows how crackers. I was, that I carried on as I was carrying on. I wouldn't do it now. I'd be far too nervous. But I was fueled by the certainty that if I was still employed there, then I had this other function. I was still representing, if you like, the old days. I think there are still people out there who linger on after the mood's gone, the keepers of the mood. And I think that description of himself as the keeper of the mood is absolutely spot on for that period.
0: Absolutely. He was very much involved in the vibes and he'd also kind of given his heart to it. The Beatles didn't give their heart to any of it because they were it and they were just constantly moving on to the next thing and I I think understandably John Paul George and Rinko couldn't really fathom people's emotional connection to some of these things when they were just trying to get through what you might describe as the functional part of their day-to-day existence.
2: Yeah, And, uh, you you know, he carries that through that idea of the keeper of the mood into the final press statement, announcing the breakup or not announcing the breakup or announcing it in a way that is fantastically ambiguous.
0: Yes. So this is the famous statement. He is still behind the desk when um, Paul's famous April 1970 press release comes out with the McCartney album that says and McCartney will never work together again and pressed for a statement, uh, Derek says famously, and it's still one of the great press releases of all time. Spring is here and Leeds play Chelsea tomorrow and Ringo and John and George and Paul are alive and well and full of hope. The world is still spinning and so are we and so are you. When the spinning stops, that'll be time to worry, not before. Tells you nothing. It does tell you nothing. But it it, it actually, you know, we said right at the start of this, his first writing about the Beatles conveys things without saying anything. Yes. And it actually does convey that it's over.
2: It kind of does. It does. And he he comments on this in Anthology and he said, I'm a bit vague as to whether there was an actual announcement. But there was a worldwide reaction to Paul's statement, uh, genuine dismay. And then he says, I absolutely did believe, as millions of others did, that the friendship the Beatles had for each other was a lifesaver for all of us. I believe that if these people were happy with each other and could get together and could be seen about the place, no matter what else was going on, life was worth living. But we expected too much of them. And I think that paragraph for me, that that sums up how I felt when I was kind of 15 or 16, the idea that if they could get back together, everything would be all right. Life would be worth living. And he's absolutely right. We expected too much of them. And it's interesting to me that that is the you never hear Paul say Mm -hmm. the public expected too much of the Beatles. That's what you hear John saying. That's what you hear George saying we expected too much of them. And I think Derek absolutely nailed it.
0: The, there's a great thing here from author uh, uh, Nick Talveski, where he, he says, you know, much of Derek Taylor's job entailed denying the media access to the Beatles. So he, he did kind of maintain that Brian Epstein thing of, you know, being a barrier, but being a good-natured barrier who people didn't really have a problem with they, th- there was kind of this odd simpatico relationship between Derek and the press where they understood that his job was to put up the barriers and so um, uh, author uh, Nick Talvesky says to his eternal credit Derek Taylor nevertheless became one of the most popular professionals in the music industry one of very few men to perfect the art of saying no graciously um, and then Chris Odell in her 2009 memoir says that Derek Taylor stood for everything that was good and honest and funny and bright about Apple. And not everything about Apple was good and honest and funny and bright. No. Some of it was what's the opposite of those things? Bad, dishonest, not funny, and dull. No. <laughs> um, he survived the Alan Klein cole, but he did leave the company in late 1970. Um, you know, and he, he outlasted many other people and it is due to the high regard that the Beatles held him in.
2: Yeah, he did. And uh, naturally what you would do when you're not producing Harry Nilsson's 1973 album, he writes a book. And George encourages him to write a book. And if yes. you remember, it, there, there is speculation that uh, Derek Taylor and George Harrison are going to write a musical about Apple in, in the, in the Final days uh, of, of, of uh, 1969, 1970, there is talk of this. But George encourages Derek to write a book. And it's difficult to see them encouraging anybody else to write a book. Yes. But also
0: the the post- that that very fascinating post-Beatles period where people are starting to write the books. You know, Neil is starting to put together the long and winding mm. road. The, one of the very first things that happen after 1970, when it's all over, is people start to try and dust themselves down and say, well, what exactly happened? And What,
2: it's, what was that?
0: Yeah, what was that thing? And so Derek is, uh, you know, he's he's well-placed to write a book. Sure, he's been writing articles and massaging words for the better
2: part of a decade at this point for the Beatles. But should I say at this point, I absolutely love this book.
0: You've already alluded towards that. It's not a linear kind of biography of any sort.
2: No, it's, it's an absolutely crazy book. It's all about the vibes. It's all about the <laughs> mood. Uh, you, you know, it comes out in 1973. It's a collection of sort of, little scenes that he paints, little observations. There, there is no narrative. It's not in chronological order. Not the first book you should buy mm-hmm. if, you're, if you want to learn about the Beatles, but it's fabulously entertaining and it's this kind of, if you want to get a sense of Derek Taylor, yes. it's as much about him, you learn as much about him in, in just through the prose. When, even when he's talking about something else, it's the style of writing. Uh, it's, it's
0: about the things he doesn't say sometimes. In the it's, whole style. It, yeah,
2: and it's... it's Cryptic and it's enigmatic and he will say things that are self-contradictory, but they all work.
0: And this is the book the, the book that comes out in 1973 is called As Time Goes By. Mm, yeah.
2: There is the other book,
0: Fifty Years Adrift, open brackets in an open-necked shirt, close brackets. Yes.
2: That's a different beast. That is a different beast. That is a very difficult book to find. I have a copy of this book, but if it's a Genesis book publication. Mm. So if the very nice people at Genesis have any copies lying around uh, <laughs> because it is it is a book that I am very reluctant to open, oh, right. you know, to read you almost have to kind of read it with a mirror on a stick so as not to crack the back of the uh, M- multicoloured mirrors on your hotmail yeah, boots would exactly. be the best way to read that book I would um, imagine But it is again just full of Lights of Fancy, and it's a book that was edited by George Harrison. Hmm. And uh, Janice put it out a very limited edition, signed by Derek and signed by George. What year is that from? Uh, Ish, uh, it's nineteen. I want to say seventy-eight, seventy-nine. Okay, Um, I may be completely wrong. Sorry to put
0: you on the spot. That's all right. so, we talked about um, Derek Taylor's life with the Beatles being a three act play. You know, the Beatles and Brian, the LA years, back at Apple. There's obviously the the epilogue of what Derek did next. And yes. what he did next, because he has form,
2: is go back out to LA. Yes. So, he uh, becomes vice president of marketing for Warner Brothers Records. So, Warner Brothers at this point is the West Coast Apple. It's so
0: good, Warner Brothers in the 70s. It's just such a lush organisation with some fantastic
2: music. So James Taylor is there. He has gone with Peter Asher. Peter Asher has gone with James Taylor to Warner Brothers. Uh, Mo Austin is, is developing a stable of artists there. And it, I think, is really doing or trying to do for a period what Apple couldn't quite manage with its artist roster.
0: I wonder why that was. I guess it's just the craziness. Warner Brothers was built on a history of being, a, I guess, a successful media enterprise. And it just managed to, in its music division, because Warner was making movies yeah. and everything else, and the rest, but it, it managed to just capture something in West Coast yeah. today at the
2: time. And if, if anybody wants to read about this, uh, Peter Ames Carlin wrote yeah. a fantastic book uh, last year, the year before it came out during lockdown, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, really recommend that book about uh, Warner Brothers.
0: Um, uh, one of the key things that he's involved in, in Warner Brothers, amazingly, is the Ruttles. Yes, of course. And so one of the reasons we, we've talked upon before about it, all these things that we are still familiar with, because Derek touched them with his presence, you know, the birds mm. and the, the magic of genius of Brian Wilson and all this kind of stuff. But he also put an awful lot of effort into making the ruttles happen, particularly from a musical side of things.
2: Yes. So everybody, I imagine, knows who the ruttles are. Or where, That the Band the Beatles could have been. That the Band the Beatles could have been. So there, w- there was this sort of spoof documentary that comes out, but the album comes out on Warner Brothers, and it's got this lavish, gateful packaging with a booklet and sort of parodying the Beatles' uh, uh, album covers.
0: And of course, George Harrison is in The Ruttles. Now, he's
2: not playing the Derek Taylor character, but he's in the scene. He's in the scene. He is a journalist interviewing Eric Manchester. And Eric Manchester is paid by Michael Palin. Now, the whole Manchester thing, the penny's only just dropped for you and me about what that means. Yes. So uh, right back at the beginning of episode one of this, this Derek Taylor uh, uh, overview, we mentioned that the Beatles thought he came from Manchester. So this is obviously, uh, this is where this comes from, that it's a kind of riff on the rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester. So Derek Taylor from Liverpool becomes Eric Manchester, <laughs> and I, that had never occurred to me. I, I I did wonder, well, you know, why Eric Manchester? But
0: yeah, there you go. It's great. Yeah, Derek to Eric, and then Manchester. Yeah, it's quite funny, and played by Michael Michael Palin,
2: Palin. and who gives a great performance, a very kind of lush uh, <laughs> performance, talking about you know, well, I get up in the morning and I look in the papers to see if I've been sued or see if I've sued anyone, and in the background things are disappearing out of the Royal Court office. There is a sort of Wikipedia. For Ruttles uh, <laughs> material, and they do have a little bio of sure, sure, uh, sure Eric I, Manchester. So,
0: this is, uh, this is Nothing Is Rutt, the Ruttles broadcast. Eric Manchester was an English journalist, writer, publicist, mm-hmm. and record producer. Uh, he is best known for his role as press officer to the Ruttles, for whom he became one of several associates to earn the moniker the Fifth Ruttle. Before returning to London in 1968 to uh, add the publicity for the Ruttle Corps organization, he worked as the publicist for California
2: based bands such as. Les garçons de la plage.
0: <laughs> Manchester was known for his forward thinking and extravagant promotional campaigns, exemplified in taglines such as The Ruttles are coming and Barry is dead. Um, yeah, good old Ruttles. Um, yeah, so it's wholly appropriate that yeah. um, George is uh, in the area when um, they're belovedly um, sending up uh, Derek Taylor. It's also just amazing. And once again, how accurate the Ruttles was in terms of getting some of the finer details correct.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And he's back in the Beatles camp for anthology in uh, 1995, 1996. And there is a very good John Savage anecdote in the update to As Time Goes By. And um, we're going to have to toss a coin. as Who gets <laughs> to read this out? Uh,
0: well, I, the other thing Derek does with the anthology is he writes beautiful sleeve notes. He, he writes yes, beautiful he introductory sleeve notes for the anthology CDs and albums. Mark Lewison does the technical sleeve notes, but each yeah. one of them has a very short, beautiful Derek Taylor essay. And I have to admit, at the time, it struck me as, oh, the old gang are back together. Yeah. A beautiful bit of Derek Taylor prose is on every anthology album. So go dig out your anthologies and have a read before Absolutely. you listen. Um, but um, yes, he he is part of the gang for the anthology. And as you say, he's um, there's an anthology documentary uh, award given uh, at the Q Awards in 1996. And the award is unable to be collected by George Martin. So what happens?
2: Peter Blake turns up and accepts the award and, and John Savage recounts this uh, in the foreword to the, the recent edition of As Time Goes By. And he said, Peter Blake accepted and used the occasion to moan about the fact that he'd only been paid £200 for the Sergeant Pepper cover. And he went on and on about it. And in the middle of all this, they're sitting at a table with Derek Taylor and the lieutenant. So in the middle of all this, Derek very loudly and very precisely said, oh, shut up, you pompous. <coughs> and it was great. Um, I'm sure everyone can figure out which word was bleeped
0: in that sentence.
2: <laughs> but it shows that he was a beetle man right to the very end. I think the contrast between Derek Taylor and Peter Blake, who some people might also see as being part of Yes. The crowd, the in cried.
0: Yeah, I mean, Peter Blake is an amazing artist, but my God, he's complained about Sergeant Pepper a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, sadly, though, Derek died in 1997, um, on the 8th of September 1997, at the age of 65. And uh, he, he he died the same uh, time as Princess Diana and Mother Teresa. It was that time in the universe. And Paul McCartney at the time said, he was a beautiful man, it's a time for tears Words may come later, I guess because he didn't have Derek to write the words for him. Yes,
2: but he did have Jeff Baker. Jeff Baker.
0: and He's not going to get the two part episode he's out of us. He's definitely not going to get the two part <laughs> episode.
2: But he did say Derek leaves a thousand friends. Derek was not only the world's greatest press officer, he was also one of the funniest, kindest and most decent men you could have met. All who did meet him loved him. In 1969, this is where it gets a bit trite, the Beatles sang, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Derek Taylor was the proof of that equation. Will this do?
0: <laughs> Please sign off by 5pm, Yes, Jeff. Um, but he, the notion is that he was very highly regarded. Rupert Perry, chairman of EMI Records Group at the time, said the untimely death of Derek Taylor is a sad loss for our industry, and especially for those of us who are privileged to know him during his years. Uh, holding the outside world together during the crazy days of Apple, and more recently as the constant voice of sanity and reason amidst the furor of the Beatles' new recordings and reunions, Derek's calmness and infinite charm and wisdom cooled many a hot head. Despite his illness, Derek continued to provide support to the Beatles, Apple, and Nehemiah, and we will remember him with great affection and gratitude. And that is striking about how he was an important part of the anthology project. And again, it's a vibes thing.
2: It is a vibes thing. Mm. He is the purveyor of good vibes.
0: Yeah. Um Brian Wilson uh had a statement that was read at Derek Taylor's uh funeral. You know, I'm not gonna read all of Brian's uh statement, but he you know, he does refer that the success, particularly the UK based success of pet sounds and good vibrations was very much a Derek Taylor um in, cause and effect really and what I do like is that Derek was the one who came up with the term pocket symphony to describe good vibrations and uh, it's amazing because we still use that phrase pocket symphony today to describe good vibrations and Yes
2: and, and, and Brian is saying you know despite what he wrote about me it was Derek Taylor who was the genius he was a genius writer so I mean this, this is, these are kind of titans of the music industry acknowledging and Roger McGuinn talks about him as well at the time and he talks about Derek arranging uh, a meeting between the birds and the Beatles when they were in London and uh, just said uh, you know we, we were overwhelmed it was Derek it was the charm of Derek Taylor that kept us from being completely overwhelmed by the situation and we kind of forget that Derek Taylor
0: um you know, we we talked about how, isn't it funny how their, even the Beatles press officer was famous but Derek was famous because he was writing a lot of newspaper articles. He was putting his name by a lot of bylines, not only on the sleeve of yeah. Beatles for sale. So, you know, the, this one chap, David Hughes, the head of comms at EMI said, I felt I knew Derek Taylor before I actually did. While working on Disc and Music Echo in the 60s, Derek's Wild weekly column from Los Angeles became the most eagerly anticipated words of any music writer at the time. When in recent years I came to actually know him, it was as if we had been friends for all those 30 years. I will not see his like again. So everybody loved him, whether they knew him directly or even through the words that he wrote. But what's really striking is Derek's funeral and who attends Derek's funeral.
2: Yeah, so this is a description. Uh, it's from a book called The Beatles and Me on Tour by Ivor Davis. And uh, George is the only Beatle to show up at the funeral. And Davis describes, you know, this very low key. He's accompanied by Eric Idle. No paparazzi, just family and friends. And George didn't speak, but they end up back at the house. And he records, records George saying, I couldn't write my way out for paper bag. I still can't. This is in connection with the... Uh, uh, column and he said it was money for old rope and Derek took care of all of that. He did my book as well, so that's the I Me Mine mm. book. And then he said Derek had been a real rock for him after the Beatles' breakup when he was confused and wasn't sure how to cope as a solo act. I always wanted to do something on my own, but it was easier said than done. Derek had more faith in me than I did.
0: Yeah, they they were you know, very, very close. And George goes on to say, there were times when I thought it was all over, but Derek kept me sane. It went on forever, all the going back and forth in court when people were calling me a fraud and a cheat. He wrote my book and was my memory and my companion. Um, and I also had Eric Idle who filled the empty spaces in my life and kept me laughing. So it's um, it's a very striking, true friendship.
2: Yes, it is. And it seems to have lasted uh, sort of from, from the day they met all the way through to... Uh Derek's death. Uh,
0: It does lead us into one or two more things which is songs, you know we talk about songs that Derek contributed to but there's also songs about Derek and it's not a surprise that uh, it's a George Harrison song.
2: So Blue Jay Way was Mm. written during that 1967 trip to California. It was a foggy night George is sitting waiting for Derek and Joan to arrive at his house on Blue Jay Way so that gives rise to that song. There's a fog upon L.A. And my friend has lost his way. There you go. You see? There it's, you that, go. it's
0: that easy to write a song.
2: Yeah, yeah. man. I wish I'd known that. I'm going to write some songs. It's too late and I. Oh well. I didn't know this other song was about him. Well, no, didn't I? Did I mention that I wanted to be Derek Taylor? Yeah. Well, now it's all becoming clear. So the the other song about uh, Derek Taylor is "Beautiful Child" by Fleetwood Mac from Tusk, the
0: best album ever. And uh, this was written. It's a Stevie Nicks song. And after Derek Taylor died, Stevie Nicks revealed that. Uh, herself and Derek had had a brief affair and she wrote this song about him. Dream job, dream job. <laughs> um, Derek Taylor, what does it all mean? Was it all a dream? No, it wasn't.
2: Yes, it was. <laughs> that's, that's, his, take that's, on his, that's his <laughs> summation of the 60s. And basically in, in his in summation of the entire decade is, was it all a dream? No, it wasn't. Yes, it was.
0: Um, He did say in an interview before his death, um, you know, I knew they, the Beatles, were wonderful. What I didn't know was there was four of them and they could hide away, whereas there was only one of me. I always had a romantic view that the thing should, if possible, be able to continue. There should always be a Beatles. And he did latch on, I think, to this notion, even when the Beatles were a live active group in the 60s, that they were going to last forever, that they were going to go the distance um you know and there there's a striking article that he wrote in July nineteen seventy where he says, You know uh, you know have they not done everything uh, as a group that such a group can do without climbing aboard their own myth and riding it like a loop tape into the vaudevillian oblivion in any case, it will be a long time before they are not contemporary, which is an extraordinary thing to say in nineteen seventy yes. and absolutely correct. They're still contemporary. And, you know, just to give the last word to Derek, it is archive time here at Apple, 1970, and I'm starting to chronicle what happened in the 60s when the mop tops burst out of Liverpool. There are many words and pictures and a whole lot of music to shape their story, and maybe the end will never be written. For who could really say the end to the Beatles? Not me, man. Not me. Ah, oh, vibes. Vibes. Oh. He can Keep feel the, the mood I can feel vibes in the room right now Keep Derek Taylor the still, giving the, still giving the vibes All these years later He's, yeah, fifth Beatle I think so It's hard, definitely sixth maybe seventh. He's there. He's in the top 10. He's in the top 10. He's a a top 10 Beatle. That's fantastic world of Derek Taylor. But what do you think, everybody? Um, You know, Derek Taylor, it's an amazing story. One about following your instincts and following your art and maybe, you know, taking some hits of LSD every now and then. Uh, We remain available in the usual places for discussion. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group. It's a private group thousands of people are there Stephen I'll let you in the uh, Twitter feed uh, which is at Beatles Pod the website which ties it all together nothingisrealpod.com and we have episodes going up on Acast Plus and thanks for all the people who've subscribed there already there's um, two to three years now of background episodes and associated episodes for people to enjoy and thank you for all your support but for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockcroft and this is Nothing Is Real and it's not the end man
1: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on Acas Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.